Amateur Traveler, episode 643. Today, the Amateur Traveler talks about monasteries and memorials, markets and fortresses, and a little bit of Yugoslavia nostalgia as we go to Serbia. Welcome to the Amateur Traveler. I'm your host, Chris Christensen. Let's talk about Serbia. I'd like to welcome back to the show Stephanie Craig from HistoryFangirl.com and Allison Green from EternalArrival.com. And both of these ladies are from SophiaAdventures.com. Stephanie and Allison, welcome back to the show. Thank you. Thank you. When I say welcome back to the show, Stephanie has been on talking about Sofia Bulgaria, and Allison has been on the show talking about Belize. But this time, we're not talking about either of those places. Where are we talking about? Allison, I'll let you answer that one. We are talking about Serbia today. Excellent. And we have done another show on Serbia, but it has been quite a long time, as I recall. And first of all, what's your relationship to the Balkans? (laughs) When I started traveling full time, I was in Greece and I was on Skyscanner. And Greece is a Balkan country, but not too many people go there thinking they're going to start a Balkan adventure in Greece. And I just looked on Skyscanner for what the cheapest next country was, and it was Bulgaria. And I didn't realize that it was Bulgaria because Bulgaria was the country north of me because I I didn't know that much about Bulgaria. But I went there for a month and loved it and then realized that the Balkans is an area of the world that it's so full of potential for travel because they want tourists so bad. It's not like Venice or Barcelona where everything's full all the time. They're so eager for you to be there. And so... I moved to Bulgaria slowly over the last two, two and a half years. I've gone to every country in the Balkans and gotten to see the differences. And I think that Serbia is just a country that people outside of real travel enthusiasts just don't know anything about. And it's amazing. Excellent. I think that answers the why should we go to Serbia? So what kind of itinerary would we recommend? It depends how much time you have. If you only have a couple days in Serbia, I would say to Belgrade, because Belgrade is really close to some really interesting day trips as well. So if you just use Belgrade as a base, then I think honestly that Belgrade has enough to do that you could easily fill three to five days just in the city. It's that interesting. It's that big. But you could also spend one or two days traveling to Novi Sad or Subotica, which Novi Sad is the European Capital of Culture 2021, I believe. And it was actually on the Lonely Planet's best in travel for the city, like cities to travel to for 2019. So it's starting to sort of come up on the radar. And it's just a really beautiful Art Nouveau, I guess the architecture is. It's a beautiful Art Nouveau city with colorful buildings, beautiful cathedrals. And it's very different from the rest of Serbia because it was actually part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. So it has a lot of architecture and tradition from that part of the world. And then also the town of Subotica is probably the most beautiful town in Europe that no one's ever heard of. It's 10 kilometers from the border of Hungary, and it's a completely beautiful city. It has one of the most gorgeous synagogues I've ever seen and beautiful palace, and it's 
really small, really quiet. And those are both easy day trips from Belgrade as well. So if you had only a short amount of time, I would say stick to Belgrade in the day trips. But if you have some more time, we have some other ideas of how you could spend one or even two weeks in Serbia. Excellent. Well, let's start in Belgrade then. What should we do and see and eat in Belgrade? So when you're in Belgrade, I always suggest wherever I am, start with a free walking tour because mm-hmm. you're going to usually see the core main sites in whatever the historic district is. And if you see a list of 20 things to do in the city, the walking tour is going to probably check off 10 or 15 of them. And so then you can go deeper after that. Any good walking tour is going to show you Hotel Moskva, which is so beautiful on the outside. It was actually the Nazi headquarters when the Nazis occupied Belgrade. So it's got some more interesting history than just being a beautiful hotel. One thing I didn't do on my first trip to Belgrade that Allison and I did when we were there last month that is so delicious, they the Hotel Moskva has a cake that they made called the Moskva Schnitt. And it's like a cherry <laughs> almond cake. Okay. And you can find this cake all over Serbia because it's famous now as like a Serbian dessert, but it originated at this hotel and they supposedly make the best one and they have it on a list with wine pairings. So for about the equivalent of $10, you can go in, get custom wine paired to this perfect dessert in almost Viennese looking ballroom area downstairs. And it's so delightful, especially if like you, you know, you go on a walking tour and you are tired. (laughs) Is there anything better than being handed cake with wine that is perfect for that cake? Now, cake and wine don't necessarily always go together for me. Are we talking about a chocolate cake and a red wine? So it's almondy, vanilla-y cake with fruit, huh. and the wine pairings are perfectly paired to go with this cake. So they're white wines, but they are they know exactly what they're doing. They've been serving this cake for like 100 years. But the waiter told us next time we come back to, to talk to him and get that there's a nicer wine that pairs slightly better that's not on there, but that he, and so if you're like a real wine person, ask your waiter if there's more options than just what's on the wine pairing. But I've never been as happy to have cake and wine <laughs> as in this beautiful hotel. All right. So I would definitely start with the Hotel Moskva, Tarajia Square. There's a really cool looking market that's very close by called the Zeleny Vanak, which is, they have all these green markets and they're like open air farmers markets, but this one has got a really interesting red and white tiled building, how it originally looked, and it's been reconstructed to look like that. You mentioned the square, but you didn't say anything about the square. I don't know if I would only I wouldn't go to Belgrade just to see the square, but you'll you'll see <laughs> <Okay>. the square. <laughs> I would say would be just walking around. The city has such an amazing vibe. If you've been to other cities in the Balkans, you'll notice that Serbia definitely has the best infrastructure, or Belgrade has the best infrastructure, and by that I mean the streets are really pleasant to walk, the sidewalks are really smooth and not cracked, and I know to other people that doesn't sound anything, that sounds normal, (laughs) but after living in Sofia, you're always looking at the ground one step forward, can't walk in text at the same time. Belgrade is in a really nice condition, it's really easy to walk around very pleasant, very livable, and everyone's sitting on on terraces, drinking coffee. It's a very social city. Everyone just seems to constantly be getting coffee with people or sitting outside having a meal. It's 
it's incredibly beautiful. It's really, really, it has such, so much more of a central European vibe to me than a typical Eastern European vibe, which I think is really interesting. My favorite area is Dorchel, and that's the neighborhood. So if you're at Liberty Square and facing the horse statue that where most walking tours meet and stuff, if you're facing that, yeah. and in front of you would be Calamagdam Park and Belgrade Fortress, which are two things you absolutely should see. The park is really lovely, and the fortress is just so cool, and it's a great place to watch the sunset. But if you were to walk to your right down the hill and through those streets, there's some really lovely restaurants where you can have like modern food or international food. And there's so many great coffee shops in the Dorchel neighborhood. And yeah, another neighborhood that I would recommend walking around in is Skidarlia. So if you walk down Skidarska Street, it is a little bit touristy, but I think there's some really great restaurants there. And it has a really nice cobblestone street with all these colorful cafes and bars and kafanas, which is uh, very traditional of Serbia. Kafana is like a coffee house that serves food, but also coffee. It just has like very traditional food on the menu and mostly sells Serbian coffee, which is sort of the Turkish style and also will sell other kinds of coffee as well. Turkish coffee or Serbian coffee, we're talking about something in a small glass, fairly thick. It was how to describe it. A little gritty, maybe? Very gritty. I like drinking mud. It's not my personal <laughs> favorite. And also don't call it Turkish coffee if you're in Serbia. Got it. Serbian coffee, but I mean, the Ottomans brought it, but you know, so I think of it as Turkish coffee, but it's very traditional and it's, it's pretty widely enjoyed there. So if you go to a kafana and have a cup of Serbian coffee, that's a very classic thing to do there. Well, and you say a kafana has traditional food. I have absolutely no idea what traditional Serbian food is or what I should order. I love the Balkans. Having lived in the Balkans for so long, I don't always love Balkan food. And so Last time when Allison and I were there, I spent probably the first week of our trip avoiding Serbian food altogether. They have amazing international food in Belgrade, and I was just like eating tacos and nachos, and I was so happy to have all of this amazing international food. It's probably one of the best international food cities in the Balkans. Like, But then I dug deep because we were writing an article about Serbian food and we needed to go eat some. And I realized that I had been really dumb and that Serbian food is lamb with onions and fried peppers that are, it almost takes like a jalapeno popper, but if a jalapeno popper was size of a meal and made gourmet style, I had, because the Northern part of Serbia, Vojvodina was part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. In that part of the country, you can find hung- foods you would normally consider to be Hungarian, but they're also Serbian foods. So I had some amazing goulashes and pork tenderloins, and I had a langosh in Sibatica. It's traditional Balkan food, but I do think that Serbia does it really well. And so if you are listening to this episode because you're backpacking the Balkans and you just don't want any more chavapi, Order some of the other items on the menu because Serbian food is, I think it's Balkan food done really, really well. You say if you're tired of ordering and then you used a word I do not know. So basically the Balkans, what they usually have is a variety of grilled meat, but basically it's the same meat, just shaped in different shapes. So chivapi is 
they call it like a skinless sausage. So it's it's rolled like a sausage, but it doesn't have any casing. So it's about each chapati would be roughly the size of your finger, and it's grilled and it's a mix of usually. It depends where you are in the Balkans because there are some Muslim countries in the Balkans, and then they wouldn't use pork. But in Serbia, it would be beef and pork, maybe a little bit of veal as well. It's a sausage. You usually get an order of five or ten grilled, and then sometimes they put kaimak on it. And kaimak is a clotted cream, sort of. It's a fresh cheese. So then you can dip the chivafi in the kaimak, and it's pretty much a heart attack on a plate. But this looks Turkish to me. This looks like uh, Sultanahmet Kofka. Yeah. So much food from Serbia and elsewhere in the Balkans is really similar to Turkish food, which is similar to Bulgarian, which is similar to Greek, right, sure. which is similar to Spanish. <laughs> they don't want to hear that. But it's it's and if you're traveling around the region like we do, you do get a little bit of food fatigue because when you cross borders, you're not really getting like whole new cuisine. You're getting slight variation on the yeah. other country's cuisine. So that's that's one of the reasons why we recommend international food when we're in the capitals, because if you're traveling through this region in a really for a longer time, because imagine being in 12 countries that all have very similar menus. So we do recommend capitals are really good for international food. And when you're in the smaller cities, that's when you should eat more local. Unless okay. you only have a small amount of time, in which case, go crazy, because who knows if you'll ever be in Serbia again. And then I want to get back to things to do in Belgrade. What else do we want to do before we move on from Belgrade? So one of my favorite things is the House of Flowers. So it's hard to be in the Balkans without hearing about Yugoslav history. But if you're, it depends mm-hmm. on like wherever you are, you're going to get a different version of it. Serbia is very proud of Yugoslav history up through the end of Tito's rule. And he was the dictator or leader of Yugoslavia that really held it all together. And Yugo nostalgia is a term that people who wish Yugoslavia still existed because think about all of these countries having so much more economic power when they were all together. And Serbia, part of why it looks like Alsama saying it looks so pretty and the roads are so good is because it really was the center of an empire for a while. And now it is not that. But Joseph Tito was the leader. And uh, the House of Flowers is where his mausoleum is. And there's also a museum of Yugoslavia that's on the property that mostly holds all of the items that he owned, including... So there's all of this amazing, tragic and positive propaganda maps, really interesting detail maps. There was a tradition every year where people from all over Yugoslavia would make these batons, like a relay race batons, that are shaped into all kinds of amazing figures that represented like different parts of Yugoslavia, and they gave, would give them to him every year. So there's thousands of these on display there. I didn't understand Yugo nostalgia from the perspective of Serbia until I really dug in deep there. Another thing I would say is there's some amazing architecture from the Yugoslav era in Belgrade. The western and eastern city gates are actually two buildings that were built in the 1970s in very social realist, brutalist style that I think are interesting in whether you choose to go to them. I physically went to them, but you'll also just see them as you're driving through the city. So Belgrade is sits where the Sava River and the Danube River connect. 
So because there's so many different waterfronts, there's a ton of really important bridges. And one of them, the which I think is the least visually interesting, is the Green Bridge. It's the old Sava Bridge. But it's actually a bridge that was built by the Nazis during the occupation and then saved by locals that when the Nazis tried to destroy it so that nobody could cross the river. And so I would walk to the Green Bridge, take photos of the rest of the landscape because that's a great place to take photos from. But then also just know you're walking across a very specific and weird piece of history and cross into Novi Beograd, New Belgrade, which is across the river, and go to the... New Belgrade Spominic, which is a giant memorial to the concentration camp that was there. So Belgrade had a very hard time during World War II, and about 23,000 people were killed at the concentration camp that stood in New Belgrade. So I definitely think that that's something that anybody who wants to pay their respects to World War II history will will definitely want to make their way over there. Well, one of the interesting things about Tito, just little history here, is that of all of the communist countries after World War II, most of them became communist because the Soviet Red Army was there and had liberated them. And Yugoslavia liberated itself. And so while Tito was repressive, certainly especially at first, he also then later breaks with Russia and becomes non-aligned. And so it's a different path. And as you say, he was the only one who apparently was able to keep the country together because as soon as he dies, it it balkanizes, as it were. I like to tell people, if I had to be in any communist country living in 1960 or 1970, I would have wanted to be in Yugoslavia. Around the end of the 80s is when you want to move to East Germany or Hungary or somewhere right, that's about right. to be liberated. Where So Bulgaria, and because Bulgaria is right next to Yugoslavia or the former Yugoslavia, it was much poorer during communism than Serbia was. Mm-hmm. when it was part of Yugoslavia. And now they're really on par and the GDP of Bulgaria is a lot stronger. So you can really see why Serbians would have Yugo nostalgia and why right. Croatians and Bosnians would not. Well, and also part of the the struggle between Serbia and Croatia and the others was that Serbia wanted to hang on to Yugoslavia and fought yes. <laughs> to retain Yugoslavia as an identity. And of course, that causes bad feelings, strangely enough. Yeah, it is really interesting whenever I meet a young Serbian or a young Bosnian Serb, because Bosnian Serbs can have Serbian passports so they can live in Serbia. Uh-huh. Whenever I meet them, they're, they have so much more Yugo nostalgia than I ever would have guessed. And we're talking about people who are like 20 years old. So they're not people that knew it. Right. They just wish they were part of something larger. And that's just not how other people in the region feel. And so it's very complicated as you travel through. I like to tell people, like, don't put your political opinions on people in the Balkans. Listen to their opinions and learn from them, because this is one of the most complicated regions in world history. Right. Yeah. Well, it's a verb and a a noun (laughs) and all those things. Other things we want to see, other sites in Belgrade before we move out, because I think we're getting close to the time we're going to need to talk about other places. So there's an area of Belgrade that's a municipality of Belgrade, but it was an independent city for most of its history called Zemun. And it is before Belgrade was liberated from the Ottomans and before it was liberated from the Austria-Hungarians. The rest of of Belgrade was part of the Ottoman Empire, but Zemun was part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. So you cross just a little bit north and all of a sudden 
you look like you're in Austria. All the churches are Baroque and they really have their own identity. And also the houses there are so, they're so charming. It's such a perfect little neighborhood. I hadn't visited it on my first trip there. There's a tower there called Gardash Tower. So the Austro-Hungarians built Gardash Tower when they had controlled the area for a thousand years. Hmm. And it up at the top of that tower is one of the best views of the city. If you love photography, you really can't miss it. Excellent. Are there other things we're going to do there? There's a really adorable little yellow church across the way that's in a cemetery. I think that cemeteries are some of the best ways to live. When I travel, I love visiting cemeteries because you get to walk around. But in, I think something that a lot of Westerners might not realize is that Orthodox cemeteries have the faces of the people who are buried in them. Oh, so walking oh, around the cemetery okay. is a very personal experience because you can see, oh, this was a little boy's grave by the years. But when you're forced to look at the engraving of a little child on a grave that and who's been buried for a hundred years. That is like a visceral body experience. And so if you're there, I would walk around the cemetery. There's some other really beautiful cemeteries in Belgrade, like the new cemetery, the Liberator Cemetery, where all of the Red Army people who did come to help them are buried. Uh, Jewish cemetery that has the Holocaust Memorial. But if you're only going to do one and you're already going to go to Zemin, I would go to the one that's across from the Gardash Tower. Well, and one thing I want to talk about, you headed to this other region of Serbia, and I'm not sure that everybody is aware of how large Serbia is. So you jumped there quickly as if you didn't go that far because you didn't go that far. (laughs) (laughs) Serbia is what, like 100 miles from end to end, top to bottom? I drove from the south to Belgrade in six hours in a taxi one day. So it's not very big. That's why if you wanted to do it in a week, you could do a lot of it. You would just feel rushed, maybe. And if you did it in two weeks, you would really feel like you saw, you wouldn't see everything, but you could feel like you saw all of the things you really wanted to see. Yeah. Well, and the U.S. is 127 times bigger than Serbia. Uh, (laughs) Wow. Yeah. When I think about how big it is, basically, we drive twice that distance to go see my son in L.A., So not (laughs) really big. Okay. One more thing I want to mention that you should see in Belgrade before I forget is they're in sort of about maybe a 10 minute walk from the central train station. There are the ruins of the Yugoslav army headquarters. Mm -hmm. And this is where the NATO bombings in 1999 took place. Yeah. Yeah. So this building was bombed several times and it was mostly bombed for like symbolic purposes, like rather than anything else, because the headquarters had actually already moved all their operations somewhere else and somewhere secret, but they've left it pretty much as is. They've done a little bit of controlled demolition just to make sure that it's not falling apart, but it's still very present in the city's landscape. And it's in an intersection of two very busy streets. So there's cars, trams, everyone's going past it. And it's crazy to think that it's been like this for almost 20 years standing here, sort of like a visual scar. And it's very interesting and it's worth seeing because I think a lot of people forget how recent it was. And it's another thing that complicates the history of Serbia, especially the recent history. Excellent. Where to next? So I would say no matter what, whether you have one week or two, started to talk a little bit before about the region of Vojvodina, which is the region that encompasses Novi Sad and Subotica. But also in Vojvodina, you have the 
the region of Frishkagora, which is famous for its wine. And specifically, there's a really cute little village about 10 miles away from Novi Sad called Stromsky Karlovsi. And this is where you can try a really unique kind of wine called Vermet. Sort of like a wine meets a digestive or like a vermouth or something. So it has like okay. herbs and spices and stuff. So it's sort okay. of like a dessert wine. And it used to be a really famous type of wine. And it was actually served on the Titanic because it was so loved by famous Austro-Hungarian people because this would have been during that time. And But Stromsky Karlovsi itself is a really small but really interesting town to see. And it's really close to Novi Sad and the Petro Veridin Fortress that is just outside of Novi Sad as well. So we would recommend if you had one week in Serbia, start in Belgrade for about three days and then rent a car. There's really no point having a car in Belgrade. You'll just be stuck in traffic the whole time. And then rent a car and then you can drive up to Novi Sad, Strebsky, Karlovsi, Subotitsa, drive around Frushkagora. There are 12 monasteries also in Frushkagora, and one of the most beautiful is Krushadol Monastery. It's probably one of the most important monasteries in the north of Serbia. And you can do see all those monasteries, wineries, and see both cities in about two days. It, it'll be a little rushed, but you could make it work. And then afterward, we would recommend people check out fourth largest city in Serbia. It's called Kragujevac, and it's home to a really interesting memorial park and museum. Kragujevac is uh, the place where one of the worst World War II massacres occurred, where 3,000 Serbians lost their lives in one day. And there's a memorial park dedicated to their memory with 12 Yugoslav-era communist monuments to the lost, and they're very abstract but they're also very touching and it's really interesting because you can drive through the park and it I don't know it took us about three hours or so to drive through the park and check out each monument walk around it think about it and it was and you can see and then the town of Kragujevac is also interesting and it's a nice halfway point between Belgrade and the northern area and southern Serbia and so finally we would suggest heading down to Novi Pazar, which is close to the border with Kosovo. And from Novi Pazar, the town of Novi Pazar is interesting, but it's not my personal favorite in Serbia. But I think there are some really interesting places around it, such as Studnitsa Monastery is probably one of the most beautiful monasteries I've been to, like all of Europe, honestly. It's the setting of it is really beautiful. It's UNESCO World Heritage Site. Parts of it date back to the 12th century, but it's been built around. Things have been added on or rebuilt throughout the ages. It's just really beautiful, and it's about maybe an hour outside of Novi Pazar. And Steph, you went to Sopachani, right? Some countries have a UNESCO site where it'll be a collection of monasteries. Serbia got theirs done independently. So I think in some places these might be one, but they're actually both independent UNESCO sites. So if you're a UNESCO World Heritage Site chaser, collector, you'll, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you'll want to go to both. So you won't want to skip one. Sopachani is also really beautiful. Serbia does this amazing thing where it likes to put its monasteries on the side of mountains. So they're very picturesque. And then one thing I would say is if you're in Novi Pazar, 
there is a mosque there that's interesting. And Novi Pazar is one of the only truly multicultural cities and areas left in Serbia. It's partly because it's so close to Kosovo. So you get a very multicultural vibe there where you see a lot of Christians and a lot of Muslims on the streets together, which after what happened with Kosovo and Albania, isn't something you see everywhere. And so it is kind of nice to have that experience while you're in the country too. And remember that Serbia is not just a country of Serbs. It's a multicultural country. Well, we should say the reason that they put the monasteries on the hillside wasn't so they have a great view necessarily, or wasn't for the tourists, but more for defensibility, which tells you a little bit about what the region was like at the time that these were built is you needed a little more defensible position. I have this problem where I go to monasteries. Like I've been to too many Orthodox (laughs) monasteries, like just traveling around the Balkans, it's impossible if you want to see UNESCO sites to not see. And we talked on the last show I was on about how Rila Monastery in Bulgaria is gorgeous. The difference between these ones in Southern Serbia and maybe other ones on the peninsula is they don't have walls that are so high that you can't see them. Okay. So some monasteries, they might be in beautiful settings, but the walls will be so high that you can't see in or out. And that's also a defensive feature. But these, the defense is where they're located. And you can take in these amazing views with the monastery that aren't always available everywhere, even monasteries that are in beautiful places. And then also Serbia's monasteries have really cool dogs. They'll let the dogs just live there. (laughs) If you love petting stray dogs, as I do, I found the dogs of Belgrade to be a little bit snooty. They're ta- very well taken care of. They don't really need your attention, but the monastery dogs really are excited to have your attention. <laughs> okay. Good to know. <laughs> <laughs> so from Novi Pazar, if you're only there for a week, and let's say you're moving on to Kosovo, you could go to Kosovo from there. Or if you're leaving out of Belgrade, you would drive back to Belgrade. And the difference between one and two weeks is we would say just slow down. So instead of trying to do all of Belgrade in three days, enjoy it in four days. Okay. And instead of trying to do Novi Sad and Olive Vodina in two days, take three days for Novi Sad and, and Stromsky Karlovsky where, and then maybe go to Sabatica for two days and get to do what people really don't get to do, which is really just enjoy it. And then maybe go to Niš, which is the third largest city in Serbia, and it has some really interesting historic monuments. It's got this really interesting World War II Holocaust memorial there. And then maybe spend an extra day at Novi Pazar so you don't feel like you're just running around trying to check things off and you can actually enjoy maybe like coffee on the main street or take in the atmosphere a little bit too. You were saying Serbia is really small. And the nice thing about that is you can really go do everything fast or you can really take your time. And my first trip to Serbia, I did it fast because I had to. And then on my most recent trip, we really, like, Allison and I spent two weeks in Belgrade just savoring the city and taking day trips and really seeing everything. So you could spend two weeks in Belgrade and not get bored. So if you have two weeks for the country, you can still do everything, just savor it a little bit more. Excellent. Any place else we want to cover? Do we want to start doing some of our wrap-up questions? So one thing is there's a town called Panchevo which is right outside Belgrade. You don't even need to do it as a day trip from the city. You, you could just take a public bus out there. But when we rented a car and drove to Subotica, we stopped there on the way. 
And there is a memorial called the Stradicha Memorial Complex to the Pancheva Holocaust that I think is really interesting and really beautiful. Yugoslavia, we've talked a lot about Holocaust memorials and World War II memorials because Yugoslavia really did a good job of creating these amazing social realist works of art. You might have heard of them as Bominics, but that just means monument. And they're both amazing works of communist art, but also commemorate World War II. So World War II was so brutal in Yugoslavia. When the Nazis invaded Serbia, they called that operation Operation Punishment. And so as an American, I've been to the beaches of Normandy. I've done a lot of World War II tourism and history travel. I didn't appreciate till I got to the Balkans what the Balkans and what World War II in the Balkans was like. And so taking time as you're either whether you go to the one in Kragujevac or the one in Niche or the one in Panchevo or even just the one in Novi Beograd, taking time to go to these amazing communist pieces of art that commemorate incredibly dark chapters of history that if they had happened to American troops, we would have movies for, but they happened to <laughs> Balkan partisans. So mm-hmm. we don't get, they don't get taught to us. I think it really explains a lot about what world war two was really like. And world war two was so much bigger. There's so many more world war two stories than we can handle. So I would say if you're there, take the time and go to some of these feminics. Excellent. One more thing I want to talk about. I actually haven't, so I've spent probably a month and a half of my life in Serbia and yet I, and over three trips and I still haven't made it out to so many places that I think are well worth seeing, but there are also a lot of really beautiful natural places to see in Serbia as well. They're a little bit far flung, which is why I haven't made it out there yet, but Terra National Park is right on the border with Bosnia and it's supposed to be absolutely beautiful. Some beautiful lakes. And there's also the Uvats River Canyon, which has a series of bends. And from a viewpoint, you can look at it and it just looks like a snake curving in the landscape. It looks incredibly beautiful. Also high in the mountains, kind of difficult to get to in Southern Serbia. And one more thing that I've heard a lot of Serbians talk about is the Shargan 8, which is railroad in the Latibor Mountains that just makes sort of a figure eight and goes in a loop around the town of Mokragora and through the mountains. It's just a very scenic, old-style train, and it looks really, really beautiful. So on my fourth trip to Serbia, because I know it's coming, I'm finally going to make it out into the nature, but I always just kind of get sucked into the cities because (laughs) Serbian cities are really interesting and there's just so much to do so many great things to eat and drink and enjoy and explore so but the nature in Serbia when I've seen photos of it or I've heard stories of friends who have gone there it seems really well worth seeking out but you do need a car and you do need maybe like a week just for the nature itself excellent you are standing in the prettiest spot in Serbia where are you standing and what are you looking at Stephanie, we'll start with you. So when I was there, when we were in Subotica, we went, we drove out to Lake Palat. Mm-hmm. It's a little lake. It's 10 kilometers from the border with Hungary. We got there right at golden hour. And so we got to watch the sunset there. And it was serene. I There's something magical about being near borders that really makes you think about the globe differently. And then on top of that sunset message with your brain. So I would say Lake Palat at sunset. Excellent. Allison, same question. 
My answer is also Subutitsa, but in a different part. Okay. And standing in front, Reichle Palace, which is the most beautiful, most quintessential Art Nouveau building I think I've ever seen. Hmm. It looks like it could be a painting or a dollhouse. It's truly one of the most beautiful buildings. It's sort of like a light orange, and it has this sort of painting that almost makes it look like a like a porcelain cup. It's so detailed and beautiful. It used to be a palace, but now it's a museum, and I've never seen anything like it, and I think it's one of my favorite buildings in the world. It's really that beautiful. Excellent. For the listeners, I'd like you to appreciate that when you look at the show notes and for the link of what she's talking about here, that someone has taken the time to figure out <laughs> how to spell all of these Serbian words and where, and where we are so that you can find them. So this would be a great episode. <laughs> That is one of the hardest parts about traveling in Serbia is being able to say where you are. <laughs> Luckily, Belgrade is easy enough. But I love yeah, that you <laughs> say them with confidence, though. So. so one tip is that if you read Cyrillic, yep. a lot of signs will be in Cyrillic and Latin, but Latin transliteration doesn't read the way it's pronounced, but the Cyrillic reads the way it's pronounced. So if you okay. can read Cyrillic, read the Cyrillic and ignore the English completely. Okay doesn't take that much work to master the Cyrillic alphabet. There's a few tricks in there, like your P's or P's and your the thing that looks like P is a row and all those sorts of things. But it doesn't take that much time to master Cyrillic, at least in terms of pronouncing it. Well, and especially if you're going to Serbia as part of a trip where you're going to Bulgaria or Macedonia, yeah. you'll want to know Cyrillic for those anyway. I know it sounds ridiculous to be like, oh, if you know Cyrillic, then, but, but just like, a lot of people that do travel Eastern Europe will end up picking up Cyrillic at some point or just being the kind of people that want to know it. So that's my tip for Serbia is read the Cyrillic and ignore the Latin pronunciations. <laughs> Excellent. If you read Subotica out loud, it looks like Subotica because the C isn't the same as in Latin. We would pronounce it like ka, but it's sa. So they don't really transliterate everything. J's are not like with a hard J. It's like a Y. But if you can just use the Cyrillic alphabet, the Serbian Cyrillic alphabet is a tiny bit different. There are like three extra letters, but it's not that hard okay. to learn. If you're staying for more than a couple of days, worth it. Like you can get the basics of the alphabet in about two days if you study for like an hour or two each day. You won't be able to read fluently, but you'll have the basics down. And then you right. can practice every time you see a sign. And it's kind of fun, actually. It's like what I imagine being a little kid is like when you're first learning how to read and learning how the world works and your eyes are just scanning everything. It's kind of fun. Well, and the other thing I found is Cyrillic obviously has a lot in common with Greek because they borrowed some of the Greek letters for mm -hmm. that alphabet because St. Cyril was, was Greek or was from Greece, I think, or Bulgaria. He was from Bulgaria. But he was from Bulgaria, but yeah, but he spoke Greek. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so. He spends a lot of time in Orid and maybe invented the alphabet Orid. It's very contentious. Yeah, There's yeah. no one clear answer, I don't think. But I found that you'd be standing in front of a sign in Greece, for instance, and you'd, at first your mind would go, I don't understand this word at all because it has, like, it starts with a pie. I, I feel like I should solve it instead of reading it. And then you'd work it out that that was a P and that other P thing was an R, and then you'd realize that the sign said panorama, and then you realized, I actually know that word. And yeah, exactly. so that language can, just a few things in terms of how to pronounce 
a few of those characters can make a big difference. Excellent. One thing that makes you laugh and say only in Serbia. One of the things that I really like about traveling the Balkans in general is how it's not that they're a cheap country. It's that things are economical compared to America. But one of the things I love is when I get in a taxi and I go anywhere in Belgrade and actually we use an, a taxi app called Cargo that's kind of like Uber because they don't have Uber. Uh-huh. I look, was looking at my credit card statement and it was 10 charges that were all $3.18. And those were my taxi <laughs> rides anywhere in this giant city that I wanted to go, <laughs> which is like right now I'm in Berlin. And if I wanted to take a taxi to the other side of Berlin, I think it might bankrupt me. It would not be $3. Yeah. <laughs> it would not be. <laughs> it costs less to take a taxi almost anywhere in Belgrade, not out to the airport, but in the city than it does to take the subway in most major cities in Western Europe. Excellent. Allison, did you have an answer for that one? I had so much time to think that I don't have a good excuse for not having an answer. (laughs) But I will just say just like cultural observation. I really just love how much people in Belgrade love being outside. And it's very different than in America. I feel like people like start to go inside as soon as it starts to get coldish or like outdoor seating is not a big thing. But in Belgrade, people will like get blankets out and they will sit until it gets really cold. They will sit out having their coffees and sitting under the blankets and, you know, drinking coffee, chatting with their friends. It's like a very social culture and they really enjoy being outdoors. Excellent. Well, I suspect that's going to depend where you're from in the U.S. Some of us who live in warmer climates sit outside for probably longer during the year. So in Serbia, you're allowed to smoke inside restaurants. Oh, okay. (laughs) They have non-smoking sections in a lot of them, and it's so common to eat outside. But when I walk into a restaurant and I smell cigarette smoke in 2018, I know that I'm in Serbia. (laughs) And if you had to summarize Serbia in just three words, what three words would you use? I would say offbeat and worth discovering. That works. <laughs> I would say uh, charming, hip. Like Belgrade okay. is hip. Okay. People do not like Belgrade is a lot of times Belgrade gets compared to Berlin for like how cool it is. Belgrade is so much cooler well, than you Berlin. You had me at the Mexican food, so you know. Hey. <laughs> yeah tacos taco now this is crucial information that everyone listening to this podcast needs to go know (laughs) belgrade has the best mexican food in all of europe and i am throwing down the gauntlet show me a better one years ago was no competition at all but (laughs) there's getting to be some competition competition. there's getting to be some competition yeah (laughs) but they have a mexican chef who is so dedicated to fixing the sorry state of Mexican food in Eastern Europe that he actually flies in next to cornmeal from Mexico, imports it, <laughs> makes his own tortillas, and they are a dream. Like, his handmade tortillas are amazing, and there's tacos al pastor, so you can get pork and pastor. Oh, there's yeah. carnitas. There's like just very, and it's very traditional. It has, like, the cilantro and onion on top, all the yep. right salsas. It, like I'm a Californian as well, and it's like exactly what my soul needed. When I found this restaurant, <laughs> I almost started to cry. I was so happy. My waitress looked a little concerned for me, but it was like probably one of the best days of 2018 for me. And I'm not even not even kidding. 
people who travel for a week or two a year have no idea <laughs> why you're raving about Mexican food. Exactly. But the long-term <laughs> travelers can relate. That is the one yeah. <laughs> cuisine that those of us in America, especially in California, but uh, other places as well, tend to love that has really taken quite a while to establish itself outside of, obviously, Mexico and the U.S., but it is coming into its own eventually. Thank and Stephanie, God. I think you still owe me one word. <laughs> Hip was your second one. Young. Serbia is really young. Okay. Everywhere you go, there are just young people out doing things, and the young people that I've met there are some of the most passionate, enthusiastic people that I've ever met. I don't know if you had told somebody in 1995 that kids born in 1995 in Serbia would be this optimistic and be this working this uh, hard to okay. make the planet better if they would yeah, believe yeah. you. But every time I meet somebody under 25 there, they blow my mind. Excellent. Our guests against are Stephanie Craig from HistoryFangirl.com. Allison Green from EternalArrival.com, and both of them from SophiaAdventures.com. And if we were looking for the best article on SophiaAdventures.com about Serbia, where are we going to send people? So we just finished our magnum opus this week, actually, which is <laughs> 101 things to do in Belgrade. So when we say that you can do, you could stay there for two weeks, we mean it. We did... 95 of the 101 things and the, some that we didn't do is because you can't do them in October. There's a Nazi ship that you can eat on, but it's only open in the summer. So we're obsessed with Belgrade. We're, we love Sofia, we're, but we're also obsessed with Belgrade and we did our research and we really went in and figured out what are the coolest things to do and it's 12,000 words. So if you're going to Belgrade and you have any questions, hit us up on our website, but check this article out because we really put everything we know about the city into this article. And then we Excellent. have a bunch of other Serbia stuff too, but that's our Your baby. Magnum opus. We'll put a link to that in the show notes. Stephanie and Allison, thanks so much for coming back on Amateur Traveler and sharing with us your love for Serbia. Thank you. Thank you. I got a new review on the podcast in iTunes from Rollins. 250, who said, having traveled a lot, this travel podcast both scratches the itch on learning about new places and brings memories to the forefront on places I've visited. Five stars. Thanks so much. It's always helpful when people review the show and better yet, when people subscribe. That's actually helps people discover the Amateur Traveler. With that, we're going to end this episode of Amateur Traveler. If you have any questions, send an email to host at amateurtraveler.com or better yet, leave a comment on this episode at amateurtraveler.com and thanks so much for listening i got to see one more cathedral 